Hi, welcome to a new episode of Engineering Rebuild. Do you think you know a lot about construction? Maybe we can provide a fresh perspective. This is a podcast where we rebuild preconceptions of engineering. Reclaim the narrative. And share the voices of women from across the construction industry. Why not join us? Let's get started. Welcome to our very first episode of the Engineering Rebuilt podcast. I'm your host, Yvonne Rani, together with Lena Soderberg. Hi. Um, hi, Lena. Good to have you here. And today I'm joined by the brilliant Brandy Davey. Um, Brandy is an amazing aviation project manager. She's been working in the industry a while. Um, we'll be going to be talking to her about her career and the amazing projects she's done and the highlights and challenges that have come with that. So, Brandy, welcome to our podcast. Would Hi, you everyone. Hi, like to introduce yourself? Yeah, so um, I'm Brandy Davey. I'm the director of BDPSP. Uh, we're a consulting firm that works around aviation and highways providing professional services, so project management, client services such as NEC free supervisors, we do tier three inspections. So essentially anything you can think of around managing projects that happen on an airfield or a highway, that's what we specialize in. Um, and primarily my role within that um, as a director running the business is actually going out onto sites and making sure that they get delivered as per the requirements for the client. So yeah, it's a very, very rewarding career. I do enjoy it. But you didn't come, sorry, Lena, you didn't come into the um, industry in a in a standard way, did you? So what did you do before you joined the industry? Um, so I, I um, went to university and did an engineering degree, but I was actually a chemical engineer. So um, I went off thinking that I was going to end up working in oil and gas or food or something like that. I actually did a stint in the nuclear industry. And um, when I was due to graduate, I... I hit a point where it was simply um, apply for jobs, apply for jobs, etc. One of the jobs that I applied for was in the nuclear industry, and one of the jobs I applied for was um, in quarrying of all things in the world. And um, the quarrying side of things, it was a company called Lafarge, who um, still exists, but um, not in the format they were when I worked with them. And uh, they, they essentially interviewed me. We did all, I've uh, done if you've ever done an assessment centre where you go and you do all these wonderful teamwork activities and what have you. And I just remember one of the, one of the activities we were blindfolded. And um, I remember thinking afterwards, like I dread to think what my face was like because I've got the blindfold on and my facial expressions, I, I, I don't, I'm not very good at um, hiding my feelings. 
And I remember being incredibly frustrated with the way some of the people were approaching the problem. It was clear to me how the problem was solved. So why didn't they just listen to what I was saying? <laughs> and uh, Anyway, I remember afterwards thinking to myself, right, okay, I dread to think what my face said. I probably won't get a job. But long and short, I got a call. Can you come and see us? We're not sure you're right for quarrying, but would you like to try contracting? I didn't really have a clue what it was. Um, so I went out to a, a project on the M1 to have a look at what they were doing. And I just thought, this is brilliant. This is absolutely brilliant. So you've got sort of your, the, the chemical engineering principles that um, we learned. A lot of chemical engineering is around, pro around process. It's around efficiencies. So there's a lot of left to right thinking. And if you're doing a scheme on a motorway, that's exactly what you're doing. You're looking at left to right thinking, albeit it might be you're starting at change here to change there, or you're looking at phase A, phase B, phase C. There's a lot of left to right thinking. So it transferred a lot of those same principles of what I'd learned at university into the practicalities of what we were then doing on the site. And of course, you go into doing that and work doing that for a few years. And um, I was supposed to go and do a, a, a large motorway project. and. At the last minute, got a call saying, we come down and run a job at an airport for us? And I'd never done an airport, I hadn't got a clue. I was like, yeah, why not? And uh, went down to RAF Norfolk and had what was probably one of the most successful projects I'd ever done at the time. It was an incredible learning curve, as I'm sure you could imagine. It had a little bit of everything on it. Um, so lighting, drainage, um, concrete pavement, asphalt pavement, working adjacent to a runway working on a military base so you know add all those things all those factors in together and it was a really really good learning experience and i've just never looked back really from there so yeah in a nutshell <laughs> that sounds amazing. sounds amazing the chemical engineering side of it it sounds like well you were saying you brought quite a lot of that across do you think there's yeah. certain things that you have that you learned from that that um other people that you've worked with haven't had or that projects haven't had um that projects have had only because you've come with that kind of different background or different um, route into the industry from everybody else? Yeah, I mean, I'd say um, the health and safety side of things within chemical engineering, because those large, um, so the oil and gas industry particularly, um, looking at the DuPont model, uh, that got brought into the industry, into the construction industry uh, as a result. You probably know it better as um, behavioural safety management. So instead of going and throwing your hard hat at somebody because they've done something wrong, actually talking to them and trying to understand. So the health and safety side of, of chemical engineering is so, so, or, or at least it was so much further on than that in construction. So my mindset always was around health and safety because things like, um, you know, the sort of oil rig disasters that, you know, basically the, the potential for things to go very seriously wrong within chemical engineering because of the heavy machinery, because of the chemicals, because of the heat is massive. So there's a lot of learning happened from that over the years that that industry is very, very stringent that in certainly from me starting in, in the industry to now, I think the industry's moved on a lot in terms of health and safety. But I know in terms of how I've delivered my projects, health and safety has always been at the forefront as a, as a result of that. And then equally, I think um, I always sort of describe myself as a bit of a bigger picture thinker. And sometimes you can find on projects that you have people that can be quite um, blinkered to certain elements. And I always like to think of myself as being able to look at how the whole process will run. And I think that comes from that chemical engineering background. That comes from essentially looking at how am I getting from there to there? What are the steps in between and what's the smoothest way I can achieve it? And while that's happening, what's going on around the edges? 
So I'm always thinking what's going to happen tomorrow, what could happen in a week, what could happen in a month, where do we need to be? And constantly be be sort of looking for that. And I think that is from that, that different background, if you like. The other thing, of course, is chemical engineering. Uh, we do a lot of work with materials, concrete. We do a lot of work with asphalt. And having an understanding of how those materials work has really helped me because on the projects that I've done, because they've been in remote locations and what have you, we've had concrete plants that I've had to manage. I've had to look at the production of, I've had to look at admixtures, we've had to do trials and understand how that process works. And the same with asphalt, with a, a, a myriad of materials, really. So that has transferred from chemical engineering then back into the construction side of things. So, yeah. So interesting projects. Um, you went down to the South Atlantic. Um, yeah, that's where I got this picture behind me from. <laughs> I, was, I was looking at that one thinking that that was probably where that came from. Um, I mean, obviously yeah. working in the South Atlantic is, uh, is a different experience to working in the UK. Um, yeah. Interesting. Don't say that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah let's uh, talk about penguins. Um, maybe not talk about penguins, but what was the biggest challenge? Was it the location or, or what was it? Um, I'll be honest with you. It, it was the location was a challenge because you really had to think in your head. Again, that same level of thinking what could go wrong, not even in a month. It was eight, it was eight weeks on a boat to get there. So if, if you thought something needed a spare part, you took it with you. Because there wasn't anywhere you were picking that up from. I mean, I always tell this great story where we forgot to order, or should I say we didn't order as much um, engineering marking out paint as we needed. We should have had probably about two pallets of it. Um, what we took was maybe two boxes. I don't know if there was an error on the order form or what, but um, while we put some more in order and um, waited for that, we had to go to the local shop. And there are shops there. It's a fantastic place um, in Stanley. And basically the paint they had was sheet marking paint. That's what they had. So we used sheet marking paint to do our drive lines for the first sort of six to eight weeks of the project until we could get some more paint. And that, that was probably the least of our problems. Um, getting fuel was was difficult. Um, and again, um, military personnel work on orders. So working on a base where you with military personnel that change every three months, and we were on there for we were there for about a year in total. Um, you think that everything's sorted and then the person who you've been dealing with for three months gets posted back home and the next person comes out and that person then reads the orders and goes, oh, well, no, we're not supposed to be doing that or that isn't how I interpret what this says. And as a result, everything changes. So you're back to square one almost and you're having to sort of build those relationships again that you, you'd already previously built. I remember one day they just turned all our fuel fobs off for our vehicles and you can imagine we took the best part of 100 people over there. So it was a significant number of personnel added to the 2,000 or so that are already on the base and the 2,000 or so that live sort of in Stanley and a little bit more sort of out, out further. But it's it's a, when you're looking at a population like that, it's a good percentage of the population. So we, we probably had, I don't know, 30 vehicles or so, maybe a few more, um, all our lorries running and what have you. And the military just one day went, no, we, we, we don't, don't give fuel to contractors and turned off fobs off, even though we've got an agreement saying that we were supposed to have fuel. So... Little things like that were tricky. Um, we had a couple of engineering problems um, around the concrete out there. The concrete was too hard to remove, believe it or not. Um, the material out there is incredibly abrasive. So obviously when it was originally placed 25 years ago, the concrete that was mixed, the concrete that was placed was done with local aggregate. 
and as a result us trying to break that out it just wasn't happening so um we came up with a solution um or should i say in conjunction with powerplane we came up with a solution which was to bring a surface mining machine across so again that added about six weeks into the program because we had to go back to um the manufacturers of the machine uh, Verken in germany they modified one of their machines they changed the drum they overballasted it and then that had to go on a boat and come out to us to enable us to do that so it's yeah it was some feat i mean yeah it was an experience i was uh, chatting about it the other day i can die, like say down out on the project for ages when i when i went and did my chartership um the two gentlemen that were doing the chartership with me i did my project um presentation on the Falklands, and uh a big part of that project presentation was just them saying and what was it like out there how was the weather you, you know things like that so i feel like i got yeah well terrible every single day terrible you know like the sort of winds we've had recently you could have those probably every every we had one week out there where we didn't lay a ton of asphalt and we had to land an aircraft on a plane surface which is just unheard of you know we had to do that full risk assessment and make the decision as to whether the aircraft could leave the UK to come and land in the Falklands on the basis that that aircraft was carrying all of the fresh food supplies, postage and all the other things that the islanders relied on. Um, fortunately, the risk assessment was good and the aircraft that was coming in was capable and it landed without issue. But I can tell you that's a, that's a conversation starter when you get called to a meeting to have that discussion. You know, you know, you know, you're sort of sitting in front of some pretty serious people when you're having that conversation. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was a great job. I mean, go back to people like um, you've now taken the best part of, you know, 100 and so staff to the South Atlantic for a good period of time. There's no nipping home from there. It's, a, you know, 18 hours on a plane. So you can't just pop back and... Um, it's from a mental health perspective, um, which, I mean, this is 2010 we went out there, you probably recognise it a bit more now. A lot of people, there were isolation, it was a pound a minute to call home. We did have some Skype um, facilities. So you weren't, you weren't just dealing with the day-to-day, -day, I'm running a project. We were all living together in the camp. We're living with the military in the camp. We were all working together, doing as many hours, we all, we all ate together. So it was it was hard to escape from work, but at the same time, it could be quite isolating because, you know, it wasn't you weren't at home for your birthday. And it was lovely when you got the cards and things in the post when they finally arrived on the plane that you'd been holding up once a week. Um, but you, you can't help but go, oh, do you know what? It's quite tough, this. And I remember um, at the time sort of joking around that like, I turned around and said, I'm a bloody project manager, not the project bloody mother. Well, you just bog, you know, like, because you, you felt like everybody's problems were being put to your door. Um, and part of that is because I think I'm quite an approachable person, generally speaking, I'm quite amenable. But pe people were struggling out there. It was a hard place to be. You know, it's isolating, it's barren, there's not a fat lot there, but we made the best of it. So I think... How often like, did... Go on. How often did people get to go home? Um, Once in the six months over there. So my, my, my stay, I got there in the June, um, as did a lot of the um, guys putting the asphalt plant up. And I went home for nine days, I think it was, at Christmas. And I wasn't actually supposed to be going home at Christmas. So I was there for basically a solid six months, I think short of four days short of six months. Um, and I flew back on New Year's Day. 
and uh, I, I remember this really vividly there were a couple of the guys that flew back with us and it was a lovely day because it's obviously summer down there in uh, January beautiful day really windy still so you didn't know it was as hot as it was and we'd just landed all of us were a bit tired and I said you know what guys I want to go down to Bertha's Beach um six miles away we've got a couple of jeeps does anyone want to come and there were a couple of the younger lads um maybe sort of early 20s maybe even a little bit younger than that and they were like oh we've, we've never been what's down there so well potentially dolphins and definitely penguins and they went oh, all right yeah we'll come so off we went probably a group of 12 of us parked park the vans up and walked the hour down the beach to see the penguins and i think probably my third or fourth time having been there and probably my umpteenth time of seeing penguins so whilst it was lovely i think at that time i'd stopped getting the the sort of thrill that you would but watching these two guys have that experience of getting their photograph taken with a penguin and almost turn into sort of kids again you know that joy that they got from it that you you know you sort of you don't get that opportunity very often to 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 go and experience something like that and actually to see the joy it brings other people because taking them there that day was wonderful i mean we all got back and we were all sunburned to air because you sure you can imagine with that wind and the 25 degree heat i think i got like a perfect t-shirt sunburn you know so that that was a really nice experience being out there as well so we did we did make the most of it when we could it was a hard project and we were trying to do a lot um we took possession on a sunday we gave it back on a friday we had very little time off in the scheme of things but you know we delivered it and the end product was good the client was happy and like i say it sort of formed a bond between the team that went down there which is good i still see some of them now when we did a project recently in campbelltown some of the guys some of the lorry drivers and what have you there had been out in the Falklands with me when we did that project so it was nice to bump into them again well, 12 years later it's still the one that you've got on the wall behind you so it must have left an impression well indeed yeah yeah that's so is it, yeah is it your favorite project then brandy no definitely not my favorite i mean it's one of but it was such a challenge yvonne that well i think it wasn't until afterwards that we all really realized what we'd achieved i think while we were there it felt like you were constantly fighting because there was always something coming to your door and i think probably what was i then i'm 39 now so i'd have been 27 28 it was a relatively young project management team as well which actually fits the model of the military because uh, you know a lot of military staff will go in at 17 or 18 so they're quite senior by the time they get to their sort of 30s so that that sort of model fit really well in terms of of the people that we were working with and and if you like having a bit, being able to build up a rapport really that that's what it came down to you know we're a similar age to the people that were controlling air traffic we're a similar age to the people that were flying the typhoons etc etc so it meant that um you did see them in the bar the liaison was good you know that kind of thing um favorite project crikey i've got a few to be fair but i mean the the ones that stand out in my mind and I, you know number one cambridge airport that's that will always be probably my number one i went and um did that project for lagan as a project manager and it just went well from start to finish we delivered it in budget on time the design was um really well put together the usual things you get with design where you've got to go back with various iterations but it was good the weather worked for us we didn't have any really bad ground conditions we had a couple of issues when we were doing the attenuation ponds but again nothing that would really make you go oh so that's number one um number two was probably campbelltown that i did recently absolutely sterling project honestly i couldn't 
we went up there thinking six week closure in Scotland, West Coast in October, not a chance. It's going to be so difficult. And we did it. We handed that runway back on time. And the, the reason that I say that was one of my favorites is purely team. Like, I, like you can't, you can't go and do a project like that without a good team. And up there, the team was exceptional. Everybody went for it. Everybody said, whatever it takes to hand this runway back, we're going to do it. But normally, you'd think to yourself, well, that's going to be to the detriment of quality. That's going to be to the detriment of safety, whatever it might be. We finished the job snag free. We finished the job accident free. And we finished the job on time. And, you know, on top of that, we were able to do things like arrange for local college to come in to see us. Um, we did a charity event, uh, like a quiz night for to raise a bit of money for sort of local charities and what have you. And we just did our best to try and, again, make the most of being on this project where we were all working the best part of seven days a week to try and get it over the line. And yeah, it went well. So yeah, enjoyed it. Do you think and then, was... I mean, I've been on... Oh, sorry. I was Go just going to say, do you think it was the combination of people? Like what created that culture? Um... Def yeah, definitely combination of people. Yeah, so um, we worked in the Isle of Man over summer, a lot of the people. So it was a lot of the same people that came across. So I think that initial sort of, if you like, norming stage was already reached um, in terms of the team. It wasn't all the same people, don't get me wrong, but we all knew each other and we knew um, what one another could do. Um, and if someone was away for a weekend, somebody else would cover what they were doing. So there was a real sort of good appreciation about one another and about what one another could do or couldn't do. Um, we had, I know this sounds really silly, but things like we had a coffee machine and a, um, a George Foreman in the office because we knew the, the hours were going to be a little bit odd at times because it depended on deliveries and hours of trucks and all those sorts of things. So it was really around logistics. We made sure that there was always, always something in the office. If you didn't have a chance to go and get something to eat, there was always something there. There was always a coffee and having those little things taken care of helps people focus on what they're doing. Um, there was another factor as well in that um, the leadership, um, the, the guy that I worked with up there, a chap called Kieran McElhatt, and Yvonne knows him as well. He's probably one of the characters in the industry that you'll meet, but I will give him his due. He let us get on with that job the way that we needed to, um, to deliver it. And that he, re he really is a good driver in the industry um, of the way that you should do things with regard to health and safety having the right people and the right equipment to deliver the works. And I mean, he's obviously very cost conscious. You have to be in construction. It's, you know, we generally work to relatively low margins, but he isn't the sort of person that would go, oh, uh, this guy's five pound an hour cheaper, but he's never been on a runway before. He, he appreciates the value of people with experience. And then that sort of drives through the job then, because you know that you can make your decisions autonomously as long as you can have that conversation with him and he's open to that conversation. And I think that that sort of leadership in my experience is really positive. And I've worked with other leaders that are similar who essentially enable you to do the best that you can do. And that's what you need when you're trying to run projects like this, particularly in remote locations. It makes a big difference. It certainly does. I mean, there's nothing like uh, being given the ability to do your job well. 
while not being micromanaged. I mean, how many micromanagers have we met? In yeah, when you put it like that, it sounds so simple. <laughs> but it's, it's how many yeah. micromanagers? I mean, the, yeah. the, the number of times that people have watching you and saying, okay, yeah, this is how you need to do it. This is how you need to do it. And you're like, just step back and let us do this because we are really qualified yeah. to do this, guys. So you just need to step back and let us get on with project mm -hmm. managing. Uh, it's nothing, uh, nothing worse than being micromanaged yeah. in any position. Um, but there we go. Um, it's been lovely to talk to you. Um, yeah. It has really gone that, that quickly. I was just, <laughs> as, a, as a closing thought, um, what if we're looking at the next five years in the industry? What do you? What's your biggest wish for the next five years in the industry? Oh, crikey. Um, I think there's a few few challenges. I think, um, do you want to call it gender inclusivity? I think, you know, we talk about women in construction. All three of us are women in construction. Um, I had six women on site in Campbelltown at one point. That's the highest number of um, people working in engineering I've ever worked with. Um, that said, uh, I am probably the only project management sort of in my field that I do that I've ever come across really there's there's very few I've met technicians I've met safety officers met quantity surveyors and what have you and um, so from an operational perspective I'd like to see more women coming into that um, but I also think it's not just about um, women I think that we need to get real as an industry and understand that um, allowing people to be themselves whether that's um, trans whether that's LGBTQ whatever that looks like uh, and I think diversity around people of colour and what have you as well I just think it's um, it's getting better, but I don't think it's the, I don't think the industry is representative. If you were to take a sample of the people that exist in the world, um, how on earth you can bring more people into the industry? Um, I, I, I don't know the answer to that. I know for me personally, um, I have two apprentices who are, are, are both women and absolutely love the project at Campbelltown. They absolutely loved it. But again, I know that if I brought them into other projects I've been involved with, that they wouldn't have enjoyed it because sometimes it, it's um, it's not a nice industry. Sometimes it is it is difficult. The people aren't all that nice. The attitudes suck. Yeah, so project yeah. dependent, isn't it? Very much so. Yeah. And so it's I think people that, dependent. That, yeah, I think and I think that's the big thing for me is around around variety, but. I also think the other thing that um, needs to be discussed within the industry is the working hours. You know, we've still got people out there working 70, 80 hours a week. There's no flexibility around um, people that have children. And I was about to say women with children, but actually it's men with children as well. You know, the reality is that sometimes you have to... What happens with men in construction is the women are at home doing the legwork. And sometimes the, the, the guys need to go home and watch their children at the carol concert too, at the nativity, whatever that looks like. That, you know, what you tend to find is um, probably a high ratio of divorces. You find um, a lot of people that are working away who are potentially struggling because they're rowing with their partner at home and things like that. So I think there needs to be an acknowledgement for, for, for all genders for that and around the working hours in the industry generally. I think we still push people to work long hours and potentially there's people working the hours of what would be considered two jobs in any other industry. And in this industry it's normal hours and what are your thoughts on geographic location and being able to work close close to home and things like that because you've obviously worked on quite a few remote projects and done a fair bit of of living away while you've been working and things like that 
Um, I go through fits and starts probably much the same as anybody else. So um, the reason I set up my own company was because I was living in Dublin for a year. And I was really fortunate that while I was there, my auntie was there who I stayed with and she, she was wonderful. She made sure silly things like I've got a packed lunch today to work, which sounds, sounds like I'm not an adult, but bless her. She, she really looked after me, but I just hit the point where there was stuff going on at home that I needed to be at home for. And I, I think that makes a difference in terms of your personal circumstances and what you've got going on at home. And um, when I went out to the Falklands, it was, yeah, no problem. When I went to the Isle of Man recently last summer, um, there were a few things going on at home, but nothing that I couldn't sort of step away from. I spoke to my husband, I spoke to my family and took the decision to go. And I'm, I'm really glad that I did. It was a fantastic project. Um, I got a lot from it. I don't mind working away, but I can appreciate when other people have got things going on in their life, why they would. And I think it's important as a project manager to have an understanding of that and plan your work such that if you have got people that have got travel home, you, you plan a long weekend in every two or something similar so that they've got time to travel, time to get back, that um, you talk to them about any commitments that they might have when you start the project so that you don't get to the point where that commitment's coming and you've got no cover. So you've got to ask them not to take their leave or whatever it is they've got booked. So the start of every project, I set up a leave calendar and we, we, we plan it so that everybody, I get what I want, i.e. the people to deliver my project when I need it to be delivered by and they get what they need which is time at home to do the normal things so i think that's important yeah you make it sound so simple or so obvious but i think there's a lot of places where that doesn't happen or yeah. that approach isn't taken and and you're just expected yeah. to prioritize the project over everything else in your life which yeah. is a lot to ask of people yeah and it's not reality is yeah. it it's not practical but you're quite right a lot of people do think that work is everything oh, and, and there's plenty everybody. of people in the industry who work those hours and i mean they, you look at the people who are retiring after 33 years 34 years in the industry and they've they've worked away from home for 33 or 34 years and they go home and and they, they're completely lost they're institutionalized almost because they're so used to that 80 hour week yeah. and i mean i know we're not in europe anymore but the european working time directive i mean the first thing you sign when you join most contractors is the opt-out for the working time directive it's like okay leave your life at the door yeah. come in mm -hmm. and i think those days need to move on that everybody um even if they don't realize they need that balance and a lot of the older members of the industry still seem to find that balance hard to to make perhaps because they're not used to prioritizing their own mental health but everybody needs that balance and if we can get to a point where people can be forced almost into thinking about themselves i mean you look at the heathrow initiatives of working hours and what's allowed and the fact that they're now making i mean heathrow have committed to having a representation that matches their community by 2025, by 49% women across the whole of the airport, 39% ethnic minorities. And that's not just the, the airport, that's all the projects. And that's gonna drive change in itself because you can't assume that you're, you're going to be able to put in a, an entirely male with the token woman construction team. And at the moment, the industry isn't set up for it. They don't have the number yeah. of people that they need to deliver those kind of things. And so they're going to have to prioritise 
enabling women, men to get a better work-life balance because they need more people into the industry to meet those kind of targets. Anyway, it's yeah. been absolutely fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, so such an interesting conversation. So good to hear about um, all the really cool projects that you've worked on. You sound like you've worked pretty hard along the process as well. I've been really lucky, yeah. You've I'll made say I'm lucky, but I've gone, yeah, I'll do that. Why not? <laughs> so, I, I have worked incredibly hard. I, I am, you know, I think, I think uh, anyone that has ever worked with me will tell you that I, I'm not a slacker. Um, just, you know, whether it's putting the hours in or what, whatever it looks like, I, I really, when I get involved with something, I really put my teeth into it and really go for it. So, yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Thanks very much. Good. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engineering Rebuilt. We hope you enjoyed being part of the conversation. Please join us next time to hear more diverse stories from people who are reclaiming their narrative to rebuild engineering.